23. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and open, open to Acts chapter 3. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there are two big sections in it. The first one is the Old Testament, and the second one is the New Testament. And Acts is the, the fifth book of the New Testament. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read the very beginning of the third book in the, in the New Testament, which is the, the Gospel of Luke or the book of Luke. And it reads this way, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word, who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And you might be saying at this point, well, what does that have to do with the book of Acts? Um, Well, everything. And I'll make an announcement first, and then I will tell you why that has everything to do with the book of Acts. If you're a college student in here today, raise your hand for me. All right, we've got a lunch for you afterward. We've got a lunch for you afterward where one of the things we're going to be doing is is giving you what we call a Bible map, a map of the entire Bible. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to open up your Bible and no matter where you are, know where you stand in relationship to everything else in the Bible and how to find your way through it? Sometimes we need a map for things. Come and join us right after the service back there at 12, and we'll be having a lunch where we do that, and we'll also take some time to pray for each other and and what God is doing on our campuses. Now back to Acts chapter 3, our regularly scheduled program. What, What does the beginning of Luke have to do with the book of Acts? If you turn to Acts chapter 1, you'll see very quickly. We've just met a man named Theophilus in the Gospel of Luke. And now at the beginning of the book of Acts, we read this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And so very quickly you begin to realize that the book of Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke. And inasmuch as it is the sequel, it shares the same purpose that the book of Luke has. Luke wrote the book of Luke in order to give a young man or an old man named Theophilus some certainty concerning the things that he had heard about Jesus Christ. That's the purpose for the book of Luke, and that's the purpose for the entire book of Acts. That those who read it might gain certainty concerning the things that are mentioned there about Jesus Christ. And that is God's purpose for all of us who are here this morning. That as we read Acts chapter 3, we wouldn't get distracted by anything else. Because we're going to read a story here and you're going to see a lot of other things and a lot of other people being mentioned. You're going to see Peter and John. You're going to read about an unnamed lame man who is lame from the day of his birth. You're going to see other names like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Solomon and Samuel, but one name stands out. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This story is about Him. 
And so let's not lose our way and let's not lose our focus as we read Acts chapter 3 together starting in verse 1. Heavenly Father, as we, as we approach your Bible, we do so trusting that these are your very own words. I know, I know there are other people in the world who believe something else about the Bible, that it's a book that just a bunch of men, you know, they, they wrote some things and some other men about 1,700 years ago decided we should put some things in it and not others. But that's not our view of this book. This is the book that you have inspired to reveal to the world your true self. In the midst of all of the lies and the errors and the confusion, you speak from the pages of this book like you speak from nowhere else. And we just pray that, that as we come together to read your scriptures, that you would give us all certainty concerning the things that are mentioned here about Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Luke chapter 3, or rather Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look, look at us. And so he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him but you denied the Holy and Righteous One. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. 
You remember Moses? Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him, they also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And we'll get into that part next week. They arrested Peter and John for preaching the gospel. Lord, we believe again that these are your words. Now please help me as I, as I attempt to explain them to the people that you have gathered here today. And uh, Again, please help us all to have certainty concerning what you say here about Jesus. Amen. I want, I want to read you something. This, at, the risk, at the risk of alienating myself almost immediately from most of you here. I'm a man, I, I, I'm not known for taking risks. With certain things. My wife is, is agreeing. But I'm going to take one here. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. <laughs> Even this year. Now, people are nicer to me this year because we're that bad. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. And, and I only mentioned that this morning to say I read something about the team this, this week that I think you'll find interesting. I was looking just, just online and I came across this that said a few days ago, Training at the Dallas Cowboys Stadium was delayed for nearly two hours when one of the players reported discovering a suspicious-looking white powdery substance on the field. Now, police and Homeland Security officials were immediately called in to investigate. However, after a thorough analysis, police forensic experts determined that the white powdery substance, unknown to the players and the coaches, was actually the goal line. The, the officials allowed the team to resume practice right away, concluding, these were NFL fans, and they concluded that it was highly unlikely that any of the players would encounter the substance again this year. Um, here's, here's why. Here's why I mention that. Uh, number one, I, I believe that the Word of God is the sharpest thing in the world. It's, it's like a scalpel, and every time we sit under it, it's as if we're undergoing a type of surgery for the soul, and it's, it's, it's a good idea to give people some anesthesia at times. But the real reason I mention that here is not just to make you feel a little bit lighthearted as we begin. Every football player should recognize a goal line. Every football player should be able to distinguish this thing from the other lines on the field. Every football player should understand that this is a big part of the reason they're on the field that a large part of what they do for the entire game depends upon where they are in relation to this line. And it's, it's really sad if you don't recognize it. You're in big trouble 
as a football team and as a football player if you don't recognize the goal line. And here's why I bring that up. In the story that we're reading here in Acts chapter 3, Peter's about to say the same thing basically to a group of Jews. How could you be a Jew and not recognize what's happening here in Acts chapter 3? Maybe there are others who wouldn't recognize this, but you're a Jew. How is it that you are unable to distinguish Jesus from everybody else who's come along? And in a minute, as we'll see, much more than a minute actually, it doesn't end with the Jews. God would say the same thing to us today. Look at me. How is it that you are unable to distinguish Jesus from every other person who has come along? The very goal line, as it were, of the human race, what we were always destined to become, who we were always destined to be with, how are we so unable to distinguish him from everyone else? So much of everything, the reason for our existence and for being here, centers around him. And yet we look at him sometimes, unable to tell what it is we're staring at. I want to take us through Acts chapter 3, one verse at a time. This chapter moves us through a progression a very neat progression that begins with a sign that leads to a sermon and ultimately ends with a summons. There's a sign, there's a sermon, there's a summons. And I want to begin by looking at the sign, the miraculous sign that we see in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now you want to notice how it starts here. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour which you might have a footnote in your Bible, is about 3 p.m. There's nothing out of the ordinary so far about this scene. Peter and John are always going to the temple at 3 p.m. because it was the time of prayer. This is just good old religion as usual. Here you are. It's 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. Where else would you be? It's time to go to that elementary school on Laburnum, sit in the gym, get a cup of coffee, do whatever it else it is you do in the morning, and, and here we are to hear someone sing some songs and to hear someone open the Bible, read it, and talk for a while. A long while, if you've, if you've ever been to Redemption Hill. Religion as usual to this point. Through the first three verses, nothing out of the ordinary. But by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 2, it's the same thing. And there was a lame man from birth who was being carried, and whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. This is everyday stuff. And we don't know exactly who they are, but the lame man was right on time. Every day, this is where they put him. And they pick him up every single day and put him there at this spot, where the traffic is heavy, the people have guilty consciences, and you can, you can make some money right here at this spot. No doubt these same people, they, are receiving their cut of the proceeds when they come to pick him up. This is somewhat of a business. There may be some, some uh, honest, just goodwill involved, but this is probably a, a very important business as well. And it's interesting because the gospel is about to do something here. Jesus is going to break in on the scene, and this guy is going to lose his job. He's actually going to lose the only way of making a living he's ever known. And so are his friends, his business partners. Man, listen, the gospel, the name of Jesus always 
has more than just a surface-level religious impact when he shows up. Some of you are going to meet Jesus in a way that you've never met him before. Whether you're Christians today or not, you're going to meet Jesus at some point. I'm going to meet Jesus at some point in a way that it's like an Isaiah chapter 6 moment. It's never happened for us before. And, and, and all I know is that something could happen to us where you, all of a sudden you're out of a job. And he's calling you to do something else. And he's got a job for you. It's just different from what you've ever known. And some of you, I'll be careful to say this as a pastor, you're called to stay right where you are. You know, I don't pretend, I don't pretend to know what that is. Anyway, I'm getting too far from my notes, but this, this happens every once in a while. But here we are, we're in verse 2, and as we move to verse 3, it's still religion as usual, isn't it? Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, this lame man asks for money. Nothing out of the ordinary so far. And then verse 4 begins to happen. And this is where the whole story takes a turn. Did, did you know that Jesus has a habit of showing up to religious meetings and, and ruining your routine? Do you know that he, he doesn't stop at just religious meetings, that he'll, he'll find you at your house? He knows where you live. Verse 4 says, Peter directed his gaze at this lame man, which you never do if you don't have money to give to someone who's asking for it. You guys know how this works, right? You look away, right? But Peter looks right at this guy, as did John, and he said, look, look at us. And then, verse 5, he expects to get something from these guys because that's how this works. If someone pays attention to you, they... You expect to get money, and, and Peter says, I, I don't have any silver, and I don't have any gold to give you. But what I do have, I give to you instead, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Not a mythical religious figure. The guy who lived right down the street in Nazareth. In the name of the real, historical, exalted, full of power, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. I, I just, I was turning to come here, I turned at the intersection of I-195 and Laburnum, and I passed Rita. Rita is, is a double amputee, her legs are cut off from the knee down, and I, I just, I, you know, I, I almost came to tears as I, as I was coming here this morning thinking, Lord, I'm about, to, I'm about to spend at least half an hour to 40 minutes talking about Peter looking at someone like Rita and telling her to get up. And for the life of me, I couldn't roll down my window and do anything of the sort. And I'm not saying that God is telling me to do it. I'm just saying I'm, I'm going to need your help. It, to, to have the sort of faith in Jesus um, that we see displayed here in Peter. And I'm not talking about emphasizing the repeating of miracles and that sort of thing. That's not Luke's emphasis here. That's not Peter's emphasis. We'll see that in a minute. I'm just saying I saw Rita this morning. I passed Ronald. And um, I think about these things. Will, will our faith in Jesus in this building 
Will it ever impact Rita? Will it ever impact Ronald? I, th- I think those are important things to think about. And here we are anyway. This, you know the story. This guy gets up. In verse 7, he gets up. Immediately his ankles and his feet were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And I'm sure he jumped right on Peter's back. Just probably rubbing his head. I mean, this guy's excited. Never seen anybody so excited to lose his job. And all the people in verse 9 saw this man walking and praising God. And they recognized him. They were able to recognize him. And in just a minute, Peter's going to tell them, that's great, but your real problem is that there's someone else you should have been able to recognize, and you didn't. They recognized this man as the one who used to sit at that gate asking people for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Well, of course they were on one level. And so now we have to explain, as Peter moves from the sign to the sermon, we've got to explain to ourselves, why is Peter giving these people such a hard time? I mean, you've read the story so far, right? The first ten verses. There is a guy who is, and we'll learn at the end of chapter 4, he's slightly over 40 years old. He has never walked a day in his life. Some of you have kids and you're wondering when they'll learn to walk, you know, because they're like 12 months old and they haven't walked yet. This guy's 40 years old. Never walked a day in his life, and now he's not just walking, he's leaping. And, and wouldn't you be amazed? And so, of course, people are amazed. And Peter looks at them and, and he says, Look, well, let's read it. Verse 11, this guy, for the first time in his life, probably goes into the temple. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. I won't spend any time on this, but it's really interesting that Peter is about to give this sermon from the one place in the temple named for the temple which existed before this one. Solomon's temple was the first temple that was built, but it was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And here are some people in danger of thinking that what is happening here is some new religious movement with power and with the potential to be what they have always been waiting for as Jews. And Peter is about to say, what you're witnessing is actually something very old. And if you even want to begin to understand it, you've got to know something about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the promise he makes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to understand Christianity today, you have to go back at least that far. That's how everyone who followed Christ and learned right from Him understood Christianity. Not as something that began when they made a decision to follow Christ some few years ago, but with a promise that God made to a man named Abraham over 4,000 years ago. God has a 70 to 80 year plan for your life to fulfill a promise that He made to another man about 4,000 years ago. And that is why it is absolutely futile to attempt to live for yourself. You see Peter in verse 11 here, he's noticing the scene. And it says here that there are a bunch of people who are utterly astounded and they run together to Peter, John, and this lame man in portico, or rather in the portico called Solomon's. Now, where were these people running from? Anybody want to take a guess? 
The Bible doesn't really say, does it? And most of you are probably afraid to take a guess if the Bible doesn't say it. You don't want to say anything heretical. I'm, listen, the Bible doesn't say anything, so I'm going to use my sanctified imagination here. I bet you at least some of these people were running from the beautiful gate. Because I'm sure some of them recognized this guy and said, that's the guy, isn't that the guy who used to ask for money outside of the gate? But I'm sure others of them said, no, that couldn't be, that couldn't be our lame man. Everyone knows that lame men don't walk, let alone jump. Surely our lame man is right there where we left him. And of course they would have run out there very quickly, not wanting to miss anything, and they would have peered their head through the, the gate perhaps, and, and they wouldn't have seen him. He was gone. And in disbelief perhaps, they would have run back in verse 11. And running back, they would have come back just in time to be confronted by Peter. Who says this? When Peter, in verse 12, saw all these people running, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though this is our doing? And Peter's about to tell them something very, very important. He doesn't want to spend too much time talking about the actual miraculous sign, but he gets very quickly to a very important sermon. And he is attempting to show them that the true significance of this moment was not the miracle itself, but rather what the miracle proved. And this is always the case. Everyone runs when miracles happen. Everyone gets excited. Everyone, it, it always draws a big crowd. Just the report of a miracle. But the issue is never whether or not a miracle has taken place. The issue is what the miracle proves. And that is what Peter is telling them here. It's not the fact that there was a formerly lame man who could no longer be found where his friends had laid him. The issue here was that there was a formerly dead man who could no longer be found where his friends had laid him. And Peter very quickly reminds him that this is not just a wonder, it is a sign. And signs don't seek to simply capture our attention and keep them there. They capture our attention to direct them somewhere else. And Peter says... This man stands before you raised today because another man named Jesus was raised first. Listen to Peter's sermon. Listen to how he welcomes the first-time guests and visitors to his church. This is not the way you win friends and influence people, as they say, right? There's a book by that title. Peter understands that as a man of God, as a witness of Jesus Christ, his obligation at this moment is not to make his first-time guests feel comfortable. It is to tell them the truth about Jesus Christ. 
That's exactly what he does. Starting in verse 12. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And the key to why Peter asks him this question is that phrase, men of Israel. I mean, if these were Gentiles who had never heard about Christ or, or who had never uh, received the Scriptures, that, th- then he probably wouldn't say this. We'd be somewhere in Acts chapter 17 with Paul saying to the Athenians, hey, I can see that you guys are very religious. And perhaps commending them for their religious rituals and activities. But here, Peter says, men of Israel, why do you stare and wonder at this? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified His servant Jesus. Don't you remember what Isaiah said about the servant of the Lord? Back in chapters 42, 49, 52, 53, and immediately Peter uses a phrase to describe Jesus, a title, the servant of the Lord. And he doesn't mean some menial, easy-to-pick-on kind of guy that, that just took a beating one day at the hands of the Romans. He, the servant of the Lord. It, and immediately their minds would have been taken back to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Chapter 53, verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him. With His stripes we are healed. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge, the righteous one shall, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The servant of the Lord. Peter says, men of Israel, what more do you need to see? What more could God or Jesus possibly do to prove to you who this formerly dead man, now raised, really is? Redemption Hill, look at me. What what more does God have to do? Does He have to do another trick? Are we among those still waiting for the next big miracle to signify that some new age of unprecedented blessing has arrived? Do we need to schedule a, a revival? Look, Jesus shows up in power when He's very well good and ready. And as we see here in the passage, sometimes His showing up is is very connected to our speaking of. But we're not among those who are sitting around waiting for the next big miracle. Look, my miracle happened about 2,000 years ago. Christ lived, died, was raised, and about 13 years ago, 
that became not only true, but very real to me. It's changed everything about my life. That's why I'm here today. For all I know, it could be the very reason that I'm still alive. Why do you wonder at this? You're Jews. And don't, why do you want, why are you amazed that this lame man is leaping? Man, they didn't have chapters back then, but do you remember Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6? Then, speaking of the days of the appointed times when the servant of the Lord would come and restore and fulfill the plan of God for the nation of Israel, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the, then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? It's in your, are you reading your Bibles? Redemption Hill, are you really reading your Bibles? Or are you still wondering at things that should be common knowledge to you because it's right there in your book? Jesus breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He speaks in listening to His voice. New life the dead receive. The broken mournful hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. Now hear Him, you deaf. His praise, you dumb. Your loosened tongues employ. You blind, behold your Savior come. And leap, you lame, for joy. Why are you surprised that a lame man is leaping for joy? Didn't Isaiah tell you this would happen? And Peter goes on to say, this only proves what I'm telling you, Jews. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant, Jesus. Jesus is the servant about whom Isaiah spoke. And do not wait around for another because there is no other coming. This is, all you, this is all you have. This is the one God has given you. Redemption Hill, don't wait around for some brilliant or powerful person to show up on the scene today or tomorrow. Don't wait around for the next elected official, the governor, the president. Look, Jesus is the servant of the Lord who will restore all things. I never get my shorts in a knot. Whether, I don't care who's in that office. I'll pray for whoever God puts in there. I'll pray for whoever the people elect. But Jesus is the servant of the Lord in whom is my trust. So, so look, I vote and then I go to sleep. And then I get back up. And then I do it again in about two years. And that's how you should live. Why, why should you panic? Jesus has been raised from the dead. Is my joy over that to be stolen because the person I think, I think the person in office comes from the wrong political party? Some of us need to repent. I'm not, I'm not joking. Some of us need to repent for our unbelief in what God is accomplishing through Jesus Christ today. I mean, all of us, all of us do to some degree. But I'm, I'm telling you, you stack that... that, that uh, that anxiety you get when you think the wrong person is, is in office, you stack that up next to what the Scripture tells us about Jesus, and some of that anxiety is supposed to fade. It's supposed to. 
Anyway, let me go on. I don't want to be on that soapbox for too long. But we did just have some elections, so I, you know, it's appropriate. Eventually, we will get to verse 14. But now, Peter does not leave his audience alone at the fact that God has glorified Jesus. He's very, very careful to point out, you delivered him over and denied him in the presence of Pilate. Now, I don't imagine that Peter says this with any arrogance here because he also has denied Jesus in the past. We don't want to be t- speaking to people with arrogance here, but I, I, think, I think Peter is driving a point home. You, you missed it. You were staring at the goal line, as it were, of Israel. Everything Israel was intended to reach by God. He came, the servant of the Lord, and you missed it. And you mistreated him. You picked on him. You killed him. This is the, the ultimate episode of The Undercover Boss. Have you, ever, have you ever seen that show, The Undercover Boss? Where, where the boss, the CEO of a company, comes in as an entry-level employee and subjects himself to the, to the treatment of the other employees there? Have you ever seen that show? Well, that's what's going on here. Jesus comes in as an entry-level human being. The creator of the human race himself, the sustainer of our life, comes in as one of us. An entry-level human being. And we killed him. We didn't just mistreat him, we killed him. And then one day, just like in the show, the undercover boss, there's that moment in the show where he puts on his suit. How many of you have seen it, just by a show of hands? He puts on his suit, gets all dressed up, and all of a sudden, everybody's able to see him for who he really is, or who she really is, the undercover boss. But now, no longer in humiliation, but exaltation. Risen to the place where we can all see this person for who he or she really is. That is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is like. It is God saying, Jesus, now. He raises him from the dead, and we all get to see. Oh, my dear God. Literally. We killed him. And if there's anything worse than killing the Son of God, It is having him come back with the knowledge of what you did and the power to do something about it. And this is exactly what has happened to human beings. Jesus is back with the knowledge of what we have done to him and the power to judge us forever. You denied the Holy and Righteous One, verse 14. You asked for a murderer, murderer to be granted to you. Instead, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this, we are witnesses. And now so is this lame man. If you don't believe what we're saying, look. It is by Jesus, watch this. And His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. All I said was Jesus, and everything changed about this man. He could walk. He could jump. I just said Jesus. The man you killed. That's all I did was speak his name. And look, if you would not believe to this point that Christ has been raised, look at this one who has been raised. Why is he raised? Because we said Jesus. 
And that man with that name, Jesus, is the one who will pronounce the last word concerning you, Jews. And everyone look at me. This man named Jesus is the one who will pronounce the last word concerning every single one of us in this room. And I don't care how old you are. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what gender you are. I don't care what religion you follow. I don't care what you say. Jesus will pronounce the last word over you. The servant of the Lord. And don't get upset with me for telling you this. I did not make this up. And I certainly didn't have time to write it in your Bibles while you were looking somewhere else. This is God's message to the world. Oh, how fortunate and how glad they were to hear verse 17. How thankful they were that the sermon did not end at this point. And, and how thankful you will be in a minute. Even though that, you're probably hoping the sermon ended at this point. This sermon anyway. But, but there's more. Acts chapter 3, verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. As did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. And now we move from the sign through the sermon to the summons. Here is what Peter says in verse 19. You would think that after saying, but, but, you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. For as 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 says, if the rulers of that age had known what was going on, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But God wanted to make sure that Jesus was crucified. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him so that we could be forgiven. And so God kept the rulers of that time in ignorance so that Jesus would be killed at their hands so that we might be forgiven. Look, this is God's plan. He kept people in ignorance so that you and I could be saved. And inasmuch as He designed to keep people in ignorance at that time, He now designs to deliver them from it. Through the revealing of His Son's true identity. Through the preaching of the Gospel. Which is why when your church meets, pastor, if you're listening, preach the Gospel to your people. Verse 19 is the summons, and Peter says, repent therefore. Well, why do we need to repent if we acted in ignorance? Because we're still responsible. That's why. Well, I don't understand how that works. You know, quite frankly, neither do I sometimes. But, but I just take truth as it comes to me in the Bible. And I, I, I think we're all better off if we do that. Yeah, I don't have the luxury of not obeying my obligations just because I don't understand them fully. Can you imagine if I related to my wife and kids that way? I don't understand why I should do this, so I'm just not going to do it. Can you imagine? Her face is turning pale at the mere thought. Peter says, repent, therefore. Therefore, you acted in ignorance, but Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the one appointed for you, Jews. And everyone in this room, Jesus is the one appointed for you. And you can see that by the time you get down to verse 26. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first. Peter's speaking to the Jews here. 
He sent Jesus to the Jews first. But that word first is extremely important for all of us today who are not Jews because it means that he sent Jesus to us next. Why? Because we had the same problem as the Jews. Our sins were jointly responsible for placing this Jesus on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins. Your sins. My sins. That's why one of the songwriters said, I, I saw a man and he said, I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. And never till my dying breath will I forget the look which seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. But with a second look, this is the look we're talking about in verse 17 through 19 here, with a second look he said, I freely all forgive. For this blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. How happy the Jews here, listening to Peter, were to know that there was a second look Jesus issued from the cross which said, I freely all forgive. My blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. Jesus died that we might live. He is the Christ not appointed against us, but appointed for us. And the question that remains before every single one of us is the one that the Jews faced on this day in question. What will you do about the formerly dead man who has been raised? Appointed for you as the Christ. What will you do in response to this message about the only man who has the power to blot out your sins, of which you have many? How much longer will many of us in this room continue to stare at Jesus Christ without coming to the point of repentance. I'll leave you with this quote. There's a, an old, old Puritan uh, <clears throat> named Thomas Watson who wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. And he said, there are many people in hell today who at some point in their life purposed to repent and just never got around to it. May that never happen to anyone in this room. May you know the joy of having your sins blotted out through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. May you know the joy of having times of refreshing come to you through the presence of the Lord. And may you know the joy of now staring and waiting for the return of your Savior, Jesus Christ, who has been appointed for us. This is the point of Luke as he writes to Theophilus and tells him of this sign which led to a sermon that ended in a summons. And now you and I are also summoned to repentance from sin and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.